Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, is that on? I can never tell. I'm not normally, yes, I'm not naturally that loud, am I? Great. Um, good morning. And let me add my welcome to Justin's and Johnny's. My name's Rob. In case we haven't met, um, I'm telling you that. Um, my name's Rob, even if we have met. Um, and um, do come and say hello afterwards. Um, I'd love to meet you. Um, for those of you who um, have already been around at least last week, you'll know that we're in a, a series of sermons in Revelation. And last week I recommended a book to you uh, by a lady called Nancy Guthrie. Um, Johnny, who I think is one of the... There he is. Are you, do, are you doing the live stream, Johnny? Yeah, he is. Um, has let me know that there's actually a podcast of her book. So if you struggle to read and you love podcasts, um, I'm a big fan, then maybe check that out. You can find her book on Audible as well. I also had a recommendation for um, Richard Buse's The Lamb Wins, also worth checking out, or Tim Chester's Revelation for you. Why am I wasting time telling you about these books? Well, because I'm not even going to come close to scratching the surface of the riches on offer to us this morning in this picture of Christ. Please, please. Don't rest in my teaching. Keep reading, keep digging into these things. We need to see Christ for who he is. Um, when I was at school as a boy in the 90s, um, uh, this man on the screen uh, came to visit. Can you work out who it is? 
It was 1998, he toured the classrooms and uh, took an assembly. Uh, and you're quite right, it was, well actually it was Prince Charles back then, as was. And during assembly, I was sat about 10 rows uh, away from him, but my friend Chris, who was sat next to me, offered me 20 pounds if I could go the whole assembly without looking at him. <laughs> Chris kept an eye on me the whole way through the assembly. I kept my eyes firmly on my feet the whole way through the assembly. Probably a little rude in retrospect, but I don't think anybody noticed. And it was the easiest 20 quid I ever made. <laughs> and of course, the vision of royal majesty on offer that day was never going to be, well, that overwhelming, was it? After all, Prince Charles, King Charles now is just a man with a nature like ours. And missing out on seeing human royalty Therefore, isn't that big a deal? Take it or leave it in, in, in some senses, though don't be as rude as I was, please. But when it comes to seeing the royal majesty of Christ, his otherworldly, heavenly, divine, incomparable, life-giving royal majesty, you cannot cannot miss out. You need it. You need it to stay his worshipper under pressure. That's the big point of today. Uh, to worship under pressure, to keep worshiping under pressure, you must see Christ for who he is. John shows us what he saw that day. He saw the risen and ascended king. That's all Christ means. It's not a surname. It means the anointed one, anointed by God to be king of the universe. John saw his divine majesty. And what he saw took his breath away and fueled his worship. And he passed it on to us that we too might see his glory and worship. And that our worship might endure. Whatever offer is made to us to take our eyes off him and for our love to cool off. Whatever threat comes our way for being his worshiper. No matter what anybody offers you, no matter what anyone threatens you with, please fix your mind's eye on the picture of Christ we are given today because without it, your worship won't endure when the pressure is on. Do you know that pressure? John knew that pressure. I wonder if you can imagine what it was like for John on the island of Patmos. The year here is um, AD 94, 95, and the Apostle John is in exile. That's why he's on Patmos. Verse 9, did you see? I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's not gone there on a mission trip. He's gone there because he's been sent there by the emperor Domitian for his preaching. He's been exiled. Patmos is a little island in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Turkey. It's um, from Fulwood, a bus, a train, a plane, a bus, a train, a ferry, and then another ferry. One of three fairly barren islands used by the Roman Empire for 
exiling criminals. Um, John was, oh, could we go back a slide? I don't think we need that one quite yet. <laughs> Thank you. John was likely tortured before he was sent there. Tortured. He was in his 80s. And he was tortured, likely, before he was sent there. That was standard practice for exiles. And though Patmos nowadays is a place of pilgrimage and holidays in the sun, then it was more of a labor camp, a gulag, where the sun beat down on the backs of exiles as they extracted marble from its quarries to build the palaces of the emperors. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering, and the kingdom that is in Jesus. What a bold thing to say. Despite the best attempts to beat his faith out of him through suffering, John still owned the kingdom of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You see, whatever John saw on Patmos was enough to persuade him, despite the threats of further suffering, despite the offer of an end to the suffering, Whatever he saw was enough to sustain his belief in the kingdom of Jesus. And of course, for John, this stay on Patmos in his 80s was actually just the capstone of a long, hard life of being Jesus' servant and eyewitness in this world that opposes him. Here's a bit of a timeline. It's pretty simple. Uh, you can see that by now in AD 94 to 95, John was the last remaining apostle. He'd lost all his companions to martyrdom or the mission field en route. He was the last. Do you know who the first apostle was that was killed? You can look at the screen and work it out. James, the brother of John. They were thick as thieves. If you read the Gospels, you see they were close as anything. And yet he lost his brothers about 50 years prior to this day on Patmos, 50 years of mourning, the loss of his brother. But 50 years on now, alone, in his 80s, doing hard labor as best his aged body could manage, isolated. John's faith in Jesus' kingdom and his willingness to worship the king is unbowed and uncowed. End of verse 9, he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you know, John had outlived 10 Roman emperors by this stage. Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Aulus, Vitellius, Vespasian, and Titus. That makes 10. But the latest was one of the worst and most megalomaniacal. It's a bit of a mouthful, that word, isn't it? He thought very highly of himself. The Emperor Domitian, here's his coin. Um, on his right there, that's actually his son who tragically passed away when he was about nine. But the Emperor Domitian, in his megalomania, had declared his son the Son of God. What did that make him as the father of the Son of God? Do the maths. There is his son with seven stars in his hand. As he sits astride the globe, the Lord of heaven and earth. 
Domitian actually had a temple that had been built by his predecessor Titus uh, dedicated to himself that his citizens in Ephesus where John had resided before he was sent into exile that his citizens there might worship him, Domitian, as God. No wonder then that he saw John as public enemy number one. Many in Ephesus, young and old, you see, were being persuaded by the testimony of John to turn from the idols of the Roman world to worship the living God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty God we heard about last week. Convinced that John had seen him come into the world in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Can you see that this gospel of John's was inescapably political? Especially when Roman politics were so utterly religious. John preached a kingdom. He preached a king. He gathered with Christians weekly to worship as he finds himself worshipping in a way he probably never expected here, verse 10, on the Lord's day, weekly, he would gather. The day of the resurrection of Jesus that replaced the Sabbath for John as the day on which the glory of this God was revealed to his witnesses. Risen from the dead, the conqueror of death, the ruler of the universe. The Lord's day. Lord was a title used by the Caesars, the emperors. And the imperial Lord Domitian instituted days for his citizens to remember his lordship and worship him. But John resolutely refuses to do anything other than worship his Lord. On Sunday, the day of his conquest. I wonder, are you ever under pressure? Still today, religion and politics are bound up for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, aren't, aren't they? Thank you, Bob, for praying for those in India, for example. North Korea. Turkey, even, where John was from. Russia, where evangelical churches that recognize a higher authority than Putin are seen as a political threat. But what about us? What kind of pressure are we under? Well, I guess at the very least, we live in a culture now where, at best, our faith is seen as laughably medieval. And we're mocked. But at worst, our faith is seen as dangerously evil. And we're pressured. Some of us lose our jobs. Now, I don't want to overdo um, the warnings about our political landscape. It is changing more and more into the sort of landscape you see in Rome here. We can say at the very least that the pressure seems to be ramping up nowadays in our generation. Um, knowing the Alpha and Omega, we believe that the whole alphabet of human activity must conform to his design and be for his glory. And that puts us on a crash course with our culture, doesn't it? For those who believe in the sanctity of life as a gift from the creator. Inevitably, we will come to different conclusions about medical interventions at the start and end of life, abortion, perhaps increasingly euthanasia. 
in areas of human identity and sexuality when we believe that we are made in the image of God and cannot choose for ourselves our own image, then inevitably we will find ourselves at odds with our culture and our politics. Now, I've no right or desire to tell those outside the Christian community how they are to live. But can I say that when we in the Christian community simply try to submit our lives to God, isn't that hard enough? By the way, isn't that hard enough? But when we try to do it as best we can, well, we can become a stench in the nostrils of our neighbors, can't we? What's more, as Johnny mentioned, the trajectory of the established church, which does still have a seat in government in our country. Don't think that religion and politics are totally separate for us. Though, of course, thanks to our nonconformist brothers and sisters, we do enjoy amazing freedom of worship and conscience still, don't we? Let's not forget the debt of thanks we owe them. But the trajectory of our established church's leaders Our bishops seems to be to loosen the prophetic, apostolic, and historical moorings of our church so that we simply drift more and more with the current of our culture. And that trajectory means that we may well find both lords political and lords spiritual united to stamp out those of us who maintain the course that God's people have always sailed in all things moral and spiritual. But that day is not here yet. That day is not here yet. Let's not overdo it. Let's not have a victim complex. For now, historically Orthodox Christians in the UK, we still enjoy an extraordinary freedom of worship and religion, don't we? Let's not waste it. Let's sing our hearts out to our God while we still have the freedom to do so. But maybe the way we particularly need to apply this is to remember those are brothers and sisters around the world who are getting it in the neck like John. Do you remember what he said? Verse 9. I, John, your brother in the suffering. We've seen, haven't we, John's genetic brother was long since dead. How much more then did he need the care of his Christian family, just as they needed his example of enduring worship and his vision to help stir them to worship? So, arm yourselves for increasing pressure in our culture. But above all, well, shouldn't we continue to remember those who are in prison as if we were together with them in prison? And those who are mistreated around the world as if we ourselves were suffering, isn't that just the right way to treat those who are our brothers and sisters in suffering? Can I commend the work of Open Doors? If you've never looked into them as an organization, scribble it down, Open Doors, get going. Our brothers and sisters in exile, in prison, facing death, they need our support. I didn't actually show you what King Charles looked like earlier, did I? So let me show you a picture of um, another royal close to our hearts. Oh, there she is. The nostalgia, hey? When Amy and I went to live in Belarus, another place where um, Christians come under intense pressure for their faith, 
Um, a friend gave us the Queen's coronation photo to take with us, this photo. And our Belarusian landlady thought it was a photo of an English god. Is that your British icon, she said. That is actually a genuine Russian accent, I've got a degree. That is a terrible accent, sorry, it's not really. An icon is a religious painting in the Eastern Orthodox churches that's meant to depict heavenly realities. And you can see why my landlady might have been confused because the Queen does look very majestic here, doesn't she? With Westminster Abbey as the backdrop, with scepter and orb in hand. You can almost see why somebody would think that we should worship her as we look at this picture. Still, I wonder if our landlady would have thought the queen was an object of worship if she'd seen her as she had been in the past before her coronation. Can you spot her? Just an ordinary woman in an ordinary family photo. On the edge of the group, you might not even notice her. Let me ask you, what picture of Jesus do you have in your mind's eye? Is it a picture that would stir you up to worship because of its heavenly majesty and glory? Or is it the picture, is it the picture of someone you could easily pass by in the street and not even notice? Is it Jesus as he was before his resurrection and ascension and heavenly coronation? Or is it Jesus now as he really is today, crowned and exalted and majestic? Of course, with Jesus, if you go back, not just to his time on earth, but even further, before his coming into the world, then you get the same picture that you have of him now, a picture of divine glory. But you get my point, don't you? Which picture of Jesus do you have? The picture of how he was or how he is? Do you see him with his glory veiled as he was in the Gospels? Or as he ever will be now, his glory on show? Can I say that how you see him makes all the difference to whether you worship him and whether you will continue to worship him when the pressure is on. Revelation, we didn't actually say what revelation means last week, did we? Uh, that was an oversight. So let me tell you, revelation, the first word of this book and its title means an unveiling. Because of course, above all, God the Father and Jesus want to draw back the curtain on Jesus' heavenly glory for us that we might see who he is and be moved to worship him until the day he comes to take us as his bride. So are you stuck on how Jesus used to look in the Gospels? Can I say, if you are, frankly, that would be really weird. After all, which of the Gospels describes what he looked like? not a rhetorical question. It's a trick question. None of them do. None of them do. Isn't that striking? This is the picture we are given of him in the New Testament. This picture with his glory unveiled. And actually, this is what the Gospels were saying all along about him. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Didn't you see what the Gospels said? How fitting that John, who suffered so much, so faithfully, to pass on the testimony of how he had seen the Word come down in the flesh, how fitting that a messenger so faithful should now be given a vision of the one who had risen up to his rightful place. This is who the Gospels were telling us he was all along. Only just in case we didn't hear them, Jesus now helps us see what they were saying. And he doesn't just tell us, he shows us. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, don't they? In fact, as we shall see, Jesus gives us pictures and words. But let's begin by digging into the pictures. Let's see who Christ is. End of verse 12. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and a golden sash around his chest. From John's very first glimpse, he makes clear that though what he sees is amazing, it is at best a likeness, one like a son of man. So great is God's greatness that even this vision, this unveiling, cannot show John who God is in himself as God would see himself if he looked in the mirror. This is an impressionistic picture. Nevertheless, we are given this glimpse of his glory, a glory that is truly God's, one like a son of man, But hold on a second, you might be saying, a son of man, doesn't that just mean human? Well, yeah, it does. This is uh, that human king prophesied in Daniel 7 that uh, Justin read us uh, at the beginning of the service. The human who comes to receive his right to rule from God. Daniel saw a son of man approaching the ancient of days. The ancient of days whose hair was white like wool whose throne flamed with fire, uh, the wheels of his throne all ablaze and a river of fire flowing, coming out before the Ancient of Days. And that's why I'm saying this is divine glory. Because when in verse 14 we hear of Jesus that, well, verse 14, did you see? That the hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow, and that his eyes were like a blazing fire, and that his feet, verse 15, were like bronze glowing in a furnace. When we see the same white hair and fire, we realize that Jesus is who the emperor Domitian could only ever pretend to be, play at being. Jesus is the human king who is also the ancient of days. His hair is white, Because he is ancient beyond our imagining, crowned with the wisdom of eternity. His eyes are blazing fires because he is the great I am who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush that did not burn up. Because this God burns with an inner vitality that needs nothing from us, nothing from outside of himself. He is simply alive because of the power of his own indestructible life. His kingdom is founded on feet of living bronze, 
of indestructible fire and power and vitality. Look now at his hand in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Remember the coin? Domitian's son can take a break. In fact, of course, Domitian's son cuts a tragic figure, just another child who died young when he was nine. His claim to be a god as worthless in the light of Christ as the money on which it was printed. Here is the one who holds the whole universe in his almighty hand, Jesus. Now look at his mouth, 16b. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. The word of God that is alive and active like a double-edged sword, sharper even as it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, as it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, as it heals sinners, as it removes the cancer of sin like a skillful surgeon's knife, but threatens the unrepentant with irresistible power and death. Look at his face. His face, end of verse 16, like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Do you remember the Gospels? I I said there is no description of Jesus in the Gospels, but in fact, I actually lied. There is a little bit of a description of the appearance of Jesus in the Gospels, isn't there? When he's transfigured and his face blazed like the sun before his disciples. Don't you see this is who the Gospels were telling you he is all along? Weren't you listening? But above all, I think what John wants us to see is actually what John hears. You see, all those body parts are actually paired off to form a kind of sandwich structure. The first and last, his hair and face, that's his face in general. The second and second to last, his eyes and mouth, more detailed uh, facial features. The third and third to last, his feet and hands moving inward and slap bang in the middle of the description. The central thing John sees, unlike all the others, is something he doesn't see at all, but something he hears. Verse 15b, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In fact, attention has already been drawn to this voice, hasn't it? Verse 12, John turned to see. Well, to see what? To see the voice. I mean, am I going mad? How do you see a voice? Indeed, the voice has already struck John in verse 10. A voice like a trumpet. Trumpets were blown in Israel for victory, conquest. This is the voice of power and battle. But they were also blown for festivals and parties. This is the voice of joy and enjoyment and glorying. A voice of threat to enemies. A voice of thrill to its friends. Can I ask, have you heard that voice? The voice that rushes upon you with the force of a waterfall. Have you heard that voice? 
that called the land from the waters, the voice that commanded the flood, the voice that thunders from heaven, and all in his temple cried glory. The voice that moves us to worship, the voice that stills the raging storm for all who cry out for salvation. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Please listen to what he has to say here. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand. Notice the very same hand as in verse 16. The right hand that holds all the stars in existence. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do you worship this Jesus? Do you see him and hear him as he is? I wonder, do you see him where he is? Verse 13, he is amongst the lampstands and the end of verse 20, we find out the lampstands are his churches. I run a little training course on Thursdays in Doncaster and um, for two and a half years, I've got away with none of my bosses ever coming to visit me running that training course. And when Johnny arrived, he said, um, do you know, I'm actually going to turn up and watch you one day. It's funny, isn't it? Knowing that your boss is going to be in the room sharpens your mind, doesn't it? This God is here now amongst his lampstands with us for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear what he is saying. Shouldn't that sharpen your worship? Steph, one of our student workers here, spent a few years actually just over the sea from the island of Patmos in Turkey, where she was also, like John, working for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You might know Turkey today is arguably an even more hostile environment for the gospel uh, than it was in John's day under the Roman Empire. And actually not long after Steph arrived in Turkey, um, her pastor received a death threat. A death threat. And understandably, her church was shaken up. But instinctively, Steph says, she turned to this passage. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's the ultimate prison death, isn't it? The ultimate prison, far more powerful as a prison than Patmos. And you know what? Jesus has the key. I know that some of you also take huge comfort from knowing this God. Because for some of you, worshipping Christ has meant being dragged through the mud in the media. Hate campaigns at work. For still others, a kind of social death as friends and colleagues ghost us for our faith. But doesn't seeing who he is make your suffering worth it? But actually for many of us, life is pretty easy here in sunny, leafy, lovely, forward. 
There's no death threats, are there? I don't think. Johnny, have you had a death threat yet? No death threats? No death threats yet. Okay. Uh, Just don't change the coffee, okay? And um, perhaps the need to see Jesus for who he is just feels a little less urgent. What can I say? It's not just threats that can pull us away from worshipping Jesus. As I said before, there are alternative offers given to us as well. Do you know, next week, not next week, the week after when we return to Revelation after a week's break, we're going to find that you can even be doing the right things and turning up to church on the Lord's Day to worship Him, and you can just subtly find that you don't actually love Him anymore. And Jesus says that is just as serious as if you consciously abandon your allegiance to him. And he will treat such people as his enemies. And when we get to the last of the letters in Revelation, we're going to find that one of the strongest temptations we face that pulls us away like nothing else is the comfort and the enjoyment of wealth. Now, I'm not going to steal the thunder of Justin, who's preaching that passage. But can't you see that we're in danger? Let's pray. Father God, how we pray that you would stir up our worship by helping us see the one who can do what wealth could never do for us, who can offer us eternal life. Help us to love him, not even for what he can give to us, but simply for who he is. Help us to fall before him in worship. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Amen.